we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is in the Old Testament. And don't worry, I'm going to explain uh, a little bit about Nehemiah and where he fits in. What I want to do is um, kind of a different thing for the evening, but it's more similar to what we do, uh, what we did during the pandemic and what we do at 8.30. I want to invite you to interact with me in praying. So we're, we're going to use a thing called Menti. So I want, you to, I want to invite you to get your phone out. Now, let me just explain this for you, those of you who don't know. Uh, we're not going to go to it just yet, uh, so don't worry, uh, Andrew. But if you want to point your phone at it, it's completely anonymous. We won't know any of your details. We won't get your search history. Don't worry at all. It's completely anonymous. But it's going to be a way that part of the sermon is going to appear on your phone and you're going to be able to interact with it. So you can point your camera at that QR code or you can Google menti.com. When you do that, it will give you a website uh, called menti.com, funnily enough, or Mentimeter, and you then put in that code, 64845228, and then uh, during the sermon, that your phone will change, and I will invite you to uh, respond to your screen. So don't worry if that doesn't make any sense to you. We will come to that in a few moments. But what I want to try and do is bring uh, kind of where we were in our worship, uh, different difficulties of life. And we come in different places. Some of us will be going through some quite difficult experiences. And how do we bring that to God? And others of us are going, have been through difficult times and we're coming out, but we're conscious of those around us. There are people on our hearts or the stuff in the news that is concerning for us. And Nehemiah, the first chapter, gives us a kind of template for how we deal with uh, suffering. So, you may remember that before we were doing John, we were doing the book of Ezra, and Nehemiah follows on from Ezra. And you may remember, if you've been in the church a long time, you may have seen this slide before, because I like, when we get into the Old Testament, I like to try and place the book where it is historically so that you get some idea. Because I know lots of us know lots of Bible stories and we forget where they all come in. We do a whole Living the Life session on this and uh, where we go through all the different bits and we try and put them all in a timeline. But just a little brief starter. We're going to start with Abraham. And Abraham was called by God, and this is really important to hold on to this bit, he's called by God to be a blessing to the nations. So God takes hold of Abram and says, your descendants are going to be my people. And you're going to be as numerous as the stars. And the purpose is to be a blessing. The purpose of the people of God is to be a blessing. After 4,000 years, the people of God of which we are part still struggle to get hold of that. And the problem that so often occurs is two problems that occur which unfold throughout the rest of the Bible and the rest of church history is either we forget our role to be a blessing and we go off and follow some other God, which we'll see quite a bit of, or we forget our role to be a blessing and we expect God to bless us. 
Both of those are dangers of the people of God. Anyway, God gets hold of Abraham. You can find this in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. He gets hold of Abraham and says, I want you to be a blessing to the nation. So he has a son. Well, he has two sons, but that's another story. Uh, But the one we're going to just remember for this moment is Isaac. And Isaac uh, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was a hairy man. I used to identify with him, but sadly, time has moved on. And I'm no longer a hairy man. But Esau was a hairy man. I have these little things that I remember people by. Uh, in the Bible. So I also remember Esau was a hairy man. I also remember that Nehemiah, and I said this last time, and it's caused a lot of people coming back to me. Nehemiah is the smallest man in the Bible because he is Nehemiah, which is, for those of you who are unfamiliar with scripture, that's a joke. But then I had a lot of people telling me that he isn't the smallest man in the Bible, that it's actually Bildad the Shuhite. Uh, and then somebody else told me it was Simon Peter because he slept on his watch. But anyway, these are the ways I remember things. So uh, Jacob has, although he's not the eldest, he's the, he, the story you'll have to read, he ends up, uh, the inheritance goes to him, and he has 12 sons. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was, wrote a musical about one of these, Joseph, and his Technicolor dream coat, and he has a dream and pulls back the curtain to see for certain. Uh, again, that's one of the things I remember, and I have no idea why he pulls back the curtain, because I've never seen Joseph and his Technicolor a dream coat, so I don't know why he pulls back a curtain to see for certain. I just remember that line from the song. Anyway, he has 12 sons. At the end of the book of Genesis, at the end of the story of Joseph, they are in Egypt, these 12 sons, these 12 boys. And the Bible then skips on to the book of Exodus, and 400 years pass between the last word of Genesis and the first word of Exodus. 400 years, we don't know anything about that, except that these 12 boys have done something of what Jesus intended, of what God intended, in that they have become a race. They have become a whole clan. They have become a small minority group in Egypt, and they get oppressed. Here's another little really important theme in the Bible that God continually identifies with those who are oppressed and enslaved. And he says to the people of God again and again and again, remember you were slaves. So any nation that enslaves another people group will always be opposed to the purposes of God. And God will always be on the side of the people who are oppressed. That's how God continually speaks to his people. Remember you were in Egypt. Remember. Anyway, they are oppressed. And uh, the Pharaoh is worried about these people who are taking all their jobs. And so he says, we're going to kill all the babies, all the, all the boys. And one little boy, one little baby boy, is hidden in a Moses basket. And he's called Moses. So that was a great coincidence. And uh, there we have Moses who grows up and he rescues the people of God. You may remember, he leads them out. Um, I got this wrong at Living the Life. The Red Sea didn't I? Because I, I said the wrong one. He leads them out through the Red Sea and uh, he's going to take them into the promised land. He, um, they receive the, 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 
the uh, commandments, but they mess about with God and they doubt him. Even though he's delivered them, they doubt him and so they wander in the wilderness. And eventually they go in and next generation go in uh, under Joshua. And Joshua leads them to begin to take the promised land and the various other leaders after Joshua are called, Gideon, are called judges. You may remember Gideon with his fleece and Samson with his hair. I always identify with the people who had hair and then lose it. And uh, so Samson is there and various others as Deborah. Uh, and at the end of the book of Judges, which I need to tell you is not the easiest book to read, slightly easier than Leviticus, but not that easy. There's a lot of things where you go, God, is that really what you want? And the answer is, actually, it's not what God wants, but he's showing a mirror to what happens in our world. And we see atrocities in the news today, which we're going to come back to, but they are mirrored in the Bible. They are not endorsed in the Bible. It's really important to say that, but they are mirrored. So anyway, the last judge is a guy called Samuel, and Samuel chooses the first king. The first king is called Saul, uh, but he messes up. God didn't really want them to have a king because he really wanted them to look to him as their king, but they wanted to be the same as everybody else. They were operating under peer pressure. They wanted to wear the same trainers as everybody else, so they wanted a king. And so they get, eventually they get second king David. You remember as a little boy, he killed Goliath with a stone. And David grows up to be quite a good king, uh, but not a perfect king. It says that he was a man after God's heart, and yet we also read that he committed adultery and murdered the woman's wife, husband. So he's not that good a king. But we also read in the Psalms his cries to God in repentance. And so we discover that people after God's heart are not the people who get everything right, but they're the people who are sorry the people who admit it, the people who confess it. Anyway, David doesn't get to build the temple, so Solomon does. So Solomon builds the temple. The temple is the place where those commandments, those uh, stone tablets, are kept. They were kept in a little box called the Ark of the Covenant, which you remember Indiana Jones was looking for. Uh, and they were kept, firstly, in a tent, which is called a tabernacle, and then Solomon builds this building, this temple. He builds it in Jerusalem. And David had taken, finally, all the land that God had said to Abraham. What was the purpose of having a base, a land? It was that they would be a blessing to all the nations. They were to divide that land up equally. And every 50 years, they were to give it back to everybody so that everybody had the same share of the land. It was called the Jubilee. But they probably never did it. Because the people of God never really got hold of being an example and a blessing. And they kept wandering off. And they kept backing away from God and worshipping the gods of the nations around them. And after Solomon, they argue amongst themselves and there's a civil war and the nation divides into two. The north is called Israel and the south is called Judah. And this is something that often folks don't know or don't understand. So there are 10 tribes in the north in what's called Israel, and there are ten, two tribes in the south of what was called Judah. And these two nations fight a bit with each other, but they, they follow the same kind of pattern of 
disobeying God, of being unfaithful to God, of trying to follow other nations. And God's saying, well, if you do that, I can't help you. And so they get occupied and overrun and they lose battles and they cry out to God. They say, Lord, we're sorry. We messed up. We will be your people. We will be a blessing. And so he comes and he rescues them. But various prophets keep telling them, you can't keep doing this. And the prophets that come particularly tell them that you cannot treat the poor in the way you are. And so you get uh, prophets like Amos and Hosea that come to Israel, and there are books in the Bible. But eventually, they keep on doing it so many times, God says, I, I can't. I can't do this anymore. And so they are abandoned by God, and they are overrun, and the north Israel disappears. And that actually is the end of the nation of Israel until the 1940s. You may recall, if you remember your Christmas story, it's all about Judah. Judah lasts a bit longer. They don't take a lesson from the north, though. They also go on this cycle of disobeying God and following other um, uh, gods, other idols. And so there's a number of prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel that come to Judah and say, look, God is going to show you that you cannot abandon him. And you're going to fall and you're going to be taken and they go into exile. So the Babylonian empire comes and conquers Judah. And incidentally, the reason we have the word Jew is that it comes from the word Judah. So the descendants of these two tribes. Incidentally, too, if you're interested, that uh, people have speculated as to who are the other ten tribes. And there's been loads of different religions, whether it's folks in America thought it might be the Mormons, or they went to Ethiopia, it might be the Rastafarians, or they went to Europe and became the Aryan race, which influenced Hitler. There's all kinds of silly arguments that tend to be racist and damaging. There's two tribes, and they fall, and they're taken into exile. And uh, this is before Christ, so time goes backwards, so the numbers are the wrong way around, and it always confuses me. But what happens in between 587 and the following year, which is called 586, which always confuses me, but it's true because we're going backwards, because we're coming down before Jesus, Jerusalem falls the temple is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant is lost. And movie makers rub their hands and say, oh, we'll find it. But they don't. And they go off into Babylon, where they sit down with Boney M. And by the rivers of Babylon, they cry out. See all these things that come together in your head? But after it generation, God says, I want to rebuild. I want to redeem. I want to restore. I want, to show, I want you to show to the nations that I am the God who takes the broken and the failed and the stupid and the ignorant. I am the God who takes them and brings something new out of it. So he begins to prepare them to come back. And that's where Ezra was. And we, the Bible, uh, the talks I did on Ezra three years ago are available on our YouTube site if you want to pick that up. But we're going to pick up now with Nehemiah. And we're going to have 
a little exercise in prayer. So the beginning of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah. My, the words of Nehemiah. Nahum. The words of Nehemiah. That's it. Son. I'm not even going to try the other one. Son of this guy in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Let's just explain that a little bit. We can date this as around November, December 446 BC. That is 60 years after the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. 60 years after the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. 30 years after Esther. You remember Deb's been preaching through Esther. Esther is um, uh, in exile and she is a, a, a woman of God in a difficult place. So this is 30 years after her. It is 30 13 years after Ezra had set out. So it's 13 years after the middle bit of Ezra. So Ezra starts before Ezra returns and continues after he returns. So it's not long. It's all part of the same story. And he's in Susa. Susa is nowhere near uh, Judah. He is uh, in uh, the the capital that had been captured by the the Persians from Judah. Uh, Babylon. So it's where the Persian king is in Susa. And he, we read these words, Hanai, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he wants to know what's gone on with the land of his heritage. He's never been there. He's been born in exile. But like so many, many people in our world and in our uh, uh, town and in our church, we come from a different heritage. We have family in a different land. And that's part of who we are. That's part of who Nehemiah is. He's never been there, but he wants to know how it is for them. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble. He's bringing bad news. They're in great trouble because the the, the people that are there uh, around where they've returned. So there's folks returned from exile, but there are already folks there. And the folks who are there are kind of jealous. We looked at all of that in Ezra. And they don't want them to rebuild the temple. And they don't want them to rebuild Jerusalem. And although they've they've made good progress on the temple and the temple has been uh, uh, blessed and and started, the city walls are derelict and they keep getting overrun. And so the people are tremendously frightened. And they're wondering where God is. They've built this great temple, but they're just being bullied by the people around them. Judah at this point isn't an independent nation. It's just, it's just a, a province of Persia. Uh, I've made this joke before and it's offended loads. So let's go for it again. It's just Wales. It's just a place that isn't a place in its own right. There we go. That's enough to cause offence, isn't it? Uh, as someone of Scottish heritage, it's, it's just Scotland. It's just not a fully-fledged nation. It's a place that used to be. And they're in trouble. And they go, God, we've come back, but it's still difficult and painful. And he says that, um, so they're attacked and oppressed, and it says that they were in disgrace 
What does it mean? Why? Why would he say disgrace? We can understand trouble, they're being overrun, but why is it a disgrace? Well, probably it's a disgrace because here are the people of God, the creator God, the one true living God. They've come back, they've built the temple, and they look pathetic because they're frightened and they're overrun. And people are going, if that's your God, well, who, who wants to follow you? And the weakness of God's people feels like a disgrace, a humiliation. And when I heard these things, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. He's never been there and he doesn't know these people, but he's affected by it. And we can be affected by the pain of others. Nehemiah had to be willing to ask, how is it for you guys? What is going on? And the temptation for us is not to ask the question. You know, we all like to say, how are you doing, when we don't really want to know how you're doing. How are you doing? Fine, good, excellent. That's a relief. But Nehemiah is asked, how are you doing? Because he wants to know. And he is willing to listen and he's hearing stuff that is painful and difficult and he doesn't want to hear. And he's willing to feel and it's costly. It's costly. It says he sat down and wept. It is costly to see the news. It's costly to listen to people in distress. It is painful. Now, I want to just put a little a break in here and say that there, some of us in this room are dealing with our own pain, our own situations. And there are times when I know that I am on the edge of being overwhelmed by the sadness or the difficulty of the things in this church that I may be dealing with. And I know that when I'm on the edge, I don't look at the news because I know mentally it will be too much for me. So I just want to put a little bit about knowing our own capacity, because we're going to do two things now. We're going to follow what Nehemiah does. And for some of us, we're on the edge, because our cup is full of our own pain or the pain of our family. In which case, I want you to feel excused from some of the listening to other people, and I want you to use the prayer that we're going to do for yourself. But for others of us, we think our cup is full when actually focusing in on ourselves too much is unhelpful. And we need to look and see the pain of others that puts our pain in perspective. So we need to recognize where we are and we must be wise with ourselves. There may be a time when we turn our phones off and we don't hear any more bad news. There may be a time when we stop looking at our lives and we start to hear other people's. I can't say where you individually are, but tonight I want to try and address this in both those situations. Nehemiah wants to know. He wants to hear about things that he doesn't want to hear about. 
And I wonder how open we are to learn about what we don't want to know about. How open are we to know of the suffering and needs of others? And to hear of events that challenge our thinking. They challenge our thinking because they may present us with a God that isn't doing what we think God should do. We may be challenged because we hear of injustice that makes us angry or suffering that makes us question our assumptions about God and our lifestyle. Why isn't God sorting everything out? Why isn't God giving other people the comfortable, easy life that we think we ought to have? And when we engage with pain and suffering, some of the easy answers of religion don't work. But the good news is we find that they were never the answers in the Bible. They're not Je- Nehemiah's answers. They weren't Isaiah or Jeremiah's. They're certainly not the answers of the Psalms. So for those of us who are able, I want to invite you to contemplate this prayer that's on the screen. For some of us, you may say, this prayer is too dangerous for me to pray this week. You can take a photograph of it and pray with it another time. But for others of us, I want to invite you to pray it for this week. So have a quick read, and then I'm going to invite those of you who wish to, to say it with me. Now, this is the kind of thing we do at 8.30, where we engage with scriptures and we encourage each other. And the, all the 8.30 calls to prayer, we've done it through the, life, uh, through the pandemic, and we've continued uh, on with it. There's a little bit of humor. Uh, and they're there for, the, for a couple of weeks or more for you to look at. You can watch them a bit at a time and have a little bit of daily thought and prayer. But we're going to do a kind of a live stream now. If this is a prayer you want to take a risk of praying, pray it with me now. Lord, open our eyes to see the lost, excluded, lonely, and hurting. Open our hearts to welcome, include, feel compassion, and show mercy. Open our hands to reach out, lift up, and help. Open our minds to understand, remember, and pray. And move our feet to go, draw alongside, and stand firm. Amen. When I heard about these things, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days, we'll come back to that. This isn't an instant thing. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed. He immediately brings this to God. He doesn't bring it to any other idol. It's the God of heaven. He doesn't turn to shopping. He doesn't turn to the internet. He doesn't turn to money. He doesn't turn to relationships. He doesn't turn to alcohol. He doesn't turn to food. He doesn't turn to chocolate. He turns to God. He brings the pain. And he expresses his feelings. He mourns. We use a psalm every Sunday morning at 8.30. And so many of the Psalms are filled with raw emotion. This morning, I waited for God. He inclined and heard my cry. How long must I sing this song? How long must I wait? 
I want to, as we encourage you every Sunday morning, bring reality to God. Don't pray the prayers that you think you ought to pray. Pray the prayers that are really inside. Deb uh, invited us to read the book, uh, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I started reading it this week. She's produced some notes for you to discuss with his friends and individuals or on your own. You can uh, email me or Deb and we'll get them to you. But um, Tyler Statton, who, who's written the book, he quotes this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. If you're angry... Bring it to God. If you're in despair, bring it to God. If you're afraid, bring it to God. Don't wait for the anger or the fear to go. You bring it to God now. And he seeks God's intervention. He fasts. He is committed and he keeps on doing this. He does it persistently. For some days he prayed. Why does he have to pray so long? Why can't he just do one quick, instant prayer? You know, God, I've asked for it. I've named it. I've claimed it. You're going to do it. Why has he got to fast? Because God responds to our desire for something which is demonstrated in persistence. It's easy to say, oh, Lord, will you do this? But when he gets hold of us, and we weep and we fast, we, we deny ourselves because we're, this really matters to us. And God responds because he works where his people say, we really want you to do this, God. Not, well, that'd be quite nice, I fancy that by moving on now. No, he, run, he works where we really want him. And as a church, we've tried to encourage and, and develop a real commitment to prayer based on the understanding that we can't do anything. We want God to work. We want him to change and transform this community. And so prayer is a, a statement of our dependence on him rather than our self-sufficiency. It is us saying, God, I can't do this. If I pray a prayer for 10 seconds and I've forgotten it and I've moved on and God says, did you really want that? Or was that just a bit of duty? Do you really want your workplace transformed for Jesus? How many, how many weeks will you pray for that? you really want this thing resolved in your family? How many years will you pray for it? And when we pray and pray and pray and we look for God to work and we see him work, then we have a great sense of gratitude, not entitlement. When we pray once, God do it, we've asked you to do it, we've got control over you, God, you do what we say, we use the right words, you say it, we say it, you do it, we have entitlement. And religion isn't about entitlement. Religion is about humility before God saying, please, will you work? So we're going to do a little bit together on your phone. If you would like to get your phone out again, if you haven't yet enrolled in Menti, Andrew, can we see if this will work? If we uh, flip over, there we go. And I want to invite you first off to bring to God that which is on your heart or mind. So your screen will change and it will come up. Uh, this might have frozen. Let's see if it's, it has frozen. It always freezes. 
your screen's going to come up with a question and a whole load of things that are broken in the world. Yeah, there you go. Um, what issues do you particularly want to pray into? And there's a whole range of things, totalitarian regimes. And you've only got five kind of votes. I know you could put all of them. Uh, untruthful leaders, Yemen, Ukraine. These are some nations in the news this week. Sudan, the cost of living, relationship breakdown, confusion among young people, the climate change, NHS. These may be things that are directly affecting you and you're overwhelmed and you say, I can't look at anybody else. Or these may be things that you're thinking, this is on my mind, I want to change the world, I want to see. And what I want to invite you to do is simply pray by using your phone. If you've not got a smartphone and, uh, or you're frightened of using it, just, follow, just look at the screen and say, what is it you want to pray into? What is it that you want to ask God to do? Nehemiah mourned. You might grieve over some of these situations. It may be something else that's particularly on your mind that's not there. That's absolutely fine. Bring that to God in prayer. Father, we place these things before you. You know what's on our hearts. Some of these things seem overwhelming and beyond us. Like Nehemiah, we don't know what to do, but we pray. Will you hear our prayers now? In Jesus' name. Amen. If you, Andrew, if you take us back to the other computer. Nehemiah prays, the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He starts with a reminder of who God is. He reminding himself that God is all-powerful and creator. Very often in the Bible, they, when they pray, they tell God things that he already knows. Not because he needs to know those things, but because they need to remind themselves. They're coming to this God, a God who is committed to love, who keeps his covenant, his, uh, his promise of love, and commands us to love others. That's part of the big theme of John's gospel that we've gone through. And so the second part of our prayer is I want to invite you to think about what you're thankful for, because that's what Nehemiah starts with. He's, he's pleading to God, and he brings now a sense of, okay, I can see this huge problem but I want to just focus my mind on something bigger, which is the nature and character of God. And there'll be things right in the heart of our minds that are really difficult and painful. But I want to encourage you, as we do all the time, to look beyond and to find a place of gratitude. So if we can go across to the other computer, and Andrew, if you can move us on to the next slide. What are the qualities of God that we want to thank him for? So if you look on your phone, you'll have a list. Again, I think you've got five different options if you're not using a phone. If you, wanna, if you think I'm missing out on the party and I want to join in, all you need to do is Google Mentimeter or menti.com and put in that code 64845228 and you will join in. I want to give you a few moments to pause. What can you say, yeah, it is difficult, but I give thanks. For God, you are the creator. You are compassionate. You defeat death. You are the deliverer. You do guide. You are merciful. You never leave. You are patient. You are unfailingly loving. You are wise. 
Lord, lift our hearts beyond despair and into gratitude. So let's go back to the other computer. Nehemiah expresses his feelings. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. I think this is a polite way of God saying, of Nehemiah saying to God, will you please, please, please do something? And we've just said earlier that God wants to encourage us to bring the reality of how things are affecting us. And to be honest, so we're going to go back, if we may, Andrew. And again, if you pop the next one on, I want to invite you to express to him how you feel. Maybe about your situation or the news or those things that are on your mind. And to bring to him whether you feel anxious or angry or discouraged or doubtful or guilty or overwhelmed or perplexed or powerless. I want to invite you to be still for a moment and be honest with God. Lord, will you hear our prayers? We bring to you our honesty because you want to hear it, because you can transform it when we present it to you. Keep us from being fake or saying what we ought to say. Bring the pain. Place it in your hands. We'll go across back to the other computer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night. It is not a one-off prayer. He is persistently praying it for your servants, the people of Israel. That's actually the people of Judah. It's just God's people. And then he says something strange. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites. So he's identifying with the whole nation, north and south. He's identifying with Israel, which was um, uh, overrun century before. I confess. Why is he confessing? He wasn't there. He didn't do it. Why does he recognize his own part? He says, spells it out, including myself. And I think there's something really helpful for us, that if everything is somebody else's fault and we blame everybody else for everything that's wrong in the world, then we are always the victim who is powerless. And there's also a thing about us taking up stones and lobbing them at other people that somehow makes us feel good. Actually, what Nehemiah is modeling for us is an attitude of I'm just as bad. I'm not actually the people that rebelled against God, but I would have done. I'm not actually the people that worship other idols, but I might have done the same. There but by the grace of God go I. 
And as you pray for broken world and for things that are damaged, we don't do it with a righteous moral superiority, but with a sense of humility that says, I would have done that in that situation. You and I would have crucified Jesus and shouted Barabbas. You and I would have worshipped Baal and Asherah. And so he confesses his prayer. And this allows God to change us. And when we come to him in an attitude of confession, it allows us to receive cleansing for whatever guilt. Because some, some of us carry this sort of sense of guilt and shame. We can't put our finger on it. Actually, let's be honest with God and bring it to him. And it frees us from bitterness. The bitterness that God is to blame. The bitterness of anger with others. So Andrew, we're going to go back and if you pop down on your screen, Lord, we confess. I want to invite you to reflect on the things in your life that you would say, actually, I recognize that there's times when I'm apathetic or when I live in disagreement with others and I'm complaining about conflict in the world, but I, in my own relationships at work, or in family or with friends. Or maybe you want to just acknowledge a sense of gullibility. I know that's a really low one there. It's a hard to spot, isn't it? But where we were taken in by things on the internet, where we voted for things that time has shown were not true. Maybe we want to confess our lack of generosity and our unwillingness to share the resources that God has given us or our overconsumption and the fact that we have taken more from this planet than was fair. Or maybe we want to confess our self-centeredness or our sense of helplessness or our suspicion of others and our fear of the other. Lord, hear our prayer. We bring to you our unworthiness and our brokenness, our sinfulness, and we ask you to cleanse us, and we ask you to renew us, and we ask you to make us whole. And we'll go back to the other computer. And Nehemiah continues, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. He's reminding himself about the covenant, about the relationship that God wanted and how God had said to his people time and time again, do not be unfaithful, do not worship other gods. You're intended to be a blessing. Don't take it all on yourself. And how the consequence of them being unfaithful was that they would be scattered, that they had to learn that they could only depend on God, that God alone was going to be their salvation, and they were not to trust in other gods. And every time they trusted in other gods, they, things went wrong. And he's reminding them and himself of God's promise that whenever we confess our sin, whenever we return, he will bring us back. And so that which you've just confessed to or thought about, he wants to restore in us and bring us back. And he says, let your ear be attentive. 
So thinking of the things that are in your mind, we're going to go back to uh, Menti, and I just want to invite you to pray for whatever situation you want to pray for. You want to choose comfort or deliverance or forgiveness or justice or peace or provision or strength or truth. Just to pray those things as you use your finger. You may think this is a very strange way of praying. Prayer isn't words, just words spoken or words sung or even words thought. It's a whole body action. What is it you really want to see God do? What is it that you would pray day and night for him to do? Maybe for those nations, maybe for uh, our nation, maybe for your workplace, for your family or for your life. What is it that you say, God, would you please do this? Would you bring comfort or deliverance or forgiveness or justice or peace or provision or strength or truth or your will be done? Lord, we bring our prayers to you. Hear our cry. Hear our prayers. We're just going to hold that screen as we go back to the other computer, but we're going to hold that screen and come back to it. Final thing I want to show you is that Nehemiah finishes his prayer with a very strange phrase. He says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servant to delight in revering your name. Give your servant success. What does he mean? He's hundreds of miles away. How on earth is he going to save Jerusalem? But there is a point in which he's saying, I want to be part of the answer to this prayer. Um, I, uh, my family, uh, two of my boys are on camp, which is why I get to wear this jacket because nobody can tell me off, although they'll probably sit on the video. But anyway, uh, but when they were growing up, I've told you this lots of times, I used to have a phrase and it was my phrase I used it again and again and again and again and again. Whenever it was kicking off amongst the boys, uh, which, you know, every 10, 15 minutes there's a row going on and I would say, do you want to be part of the problem or the solution? Do you want to be part of the problem or the solution? The intention was, that there we go, we want to be part of the solution. I said it so often, after a while, they just go, can I be part of the problem, please, Dad? It's not working here. Nehemiah says, I want to be part of the solution. I want to do something about this. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, what does that mean? It means that he, had, he was quite a high-up slave. He was a slave who was trusted with not poisoning the king. He was a slave who would have probably been a confidant of the king. He would have been with the king because the king would have drunk quite a lot of alcohol. And he would have been there all the time. He would have heard stuff and maybe he would have been asked things. This was his job. We're going to find out next time what happens. But my question is this. What are we willing to do to be part of the solution? If we go back to the computer and if you move us on one more, there's a list of things that you might want to say, I want to do to be part of the solution. 
And I want to invite you, in answer to the things that you've laid before God, to see whether you would say, oh, I want to vote wisely. Will you guide me in voting? Will you help me to live simply? Will you help me to give generously? Will you help me to see who I can help? Will you help me to pray persistently? Will you help me to speak up truthfully and graciously? And again, just choose what is right for you, what is your commitment with God. Father, as we pray, we want to be part of the solution. Just lead us now quietly as we think about how we might bring your kingdom in, how we might be a blessing to Sutton, to our workplace, to our nation, to our world. How might we fulfill that which you called Abraham and all the children of Abraham to be a blessing. Hear our prayers, we pray.